0: Uh, as I said, we're, and as Katie said, we're beginning the season of Advent, and I love, love this time of year. Uh, I like the music parts of it. I like the twinkly lights part of it. I really uh, like the food bits of it. Uh, I even ordered some special uh, Christmas ale from Oregon, Deschutes Jubilee. right, Brad? It's good, uh, And they called me and they said, do you really want us to ship this to you in California? And I said, yes. Uh, It was the weirdest Black Friday call ever. Anyway, uh, I also love the decorations. So much so our family decorated our house two weeks ago. We're like those people. Uh, I don't care about Thanksgiving. It's just a day Abraham Lincoln made up, right? Anyway, love decorating our house. I uh, love decorating and putting up the tree and all of those things. And what's funny about a tree, if your house is like our house, you put up a big tree uh, and then you have to move stuff around. You're like, well, we got to move the chair so that the tree can go there. Because you got to have the tree next to the window so people can see, you know, you're trying to give light to the world, right? So it has got to be in a specific spot that will look good and all of that. So you move a chair after you move the chair, then you're like, well, we got to move the, the couch also because now our whole living room doesn't make sense. Now we just have a chairless." So you move that. Then you have to move the end table. If you move the end table, then you have to move the lamp. Then you have to move all of these things. And the garage for us just gets completely filled. And when you're done doing all of that, you've completely rearranged your house just to make room really for Christmas, uh, you have to recalibrate, rearrange everything. Along the way, you might be like, oh, we might as well just get a new couch, a new end table, a new chair. But Advent, above all, is really, it's a season about a hope rearrangement, hope recalibration. Uh, we end the year and we begin our next year by rewiring, remembering, rearranging, realigning, restructuring our hopes, Uh, Through the summer and through vacations and through the busyness of work, through work drama, through school drama, uh, through errands, through politics, little by little, you alter your hopes throughout the year. It's what happens. Uh, You begin hoping uh, in these different things in life to bring you satisfaction, to bring you contentment, to bring you rest, and you're looking for all of those things, and our minds get set on these other things as the ultimate hope, and then Advent comes to tell us and to remind us to rearrange our hopes once again around the promised child that was born in a manger, to have an exclusive, like, oh, we have to push everything else out. We have to do a whole cleaning of our souls and our minds to around that one hope, the Savior born into the world, the King who came, the King who rose again to create that kingdom of peace and joy that everyone wants to sing about and put on Christmas cards. Of a, we, we have to rearrange our lives around the hopes of a Savior who is going to return and make all sad things untrue once and for all. And so perhaps that's even the meaning of that line from the Advent song, Joy to the World, that says, let earth receive her king, let every heart prepare him room. That we have to, uh, this season, Advent is beckoning us to, to make room for the lasting, enduring, uh, holistic hope that is Jesus. So, this year we're going to read uh, today a passage on prophet, uh, from prophecy from the Old Testament. We'll read a passage about the birth of Jesus, and we'll read a passage about the, the hope looking forward through Revelation. Um, and maybe through all of that, we'll end this holiday season with more than just a, a new furniture set up in our homes. Uh, maybe we'll end this season with a little bit more than a trash bag full of dried-up pine needles that will start a ball of fire with just the smallest match. Or maybe we'll, we'll end this season with more than just a belly full of extra sweets. Uh, maybe, just maybe, we'll become the kind of people that have our hope completely oriented and altered around the life of the one who came, around the, the person and the work of Jesus. And so we're going to start with those words uh, that got people first, God's people first thinking about the arrival of a Savior. It's in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 19 is where we'll start, but it goes through uh, to chapter 9. And this is what it says. When someone tells you to consult mediums and spirits who whisper and mutter, should not the people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instruction and testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. And I know right now you're thinking, Brad, you've pulled up the wrong passage. This is not, an, this is not Christmassy vibes. This isn't getting me in the spirit of jolly and goodwill. But trust me, it is. Verse 21, it says, distressed and hungry... Uh, They will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and look upward and will curse their king and their God. And then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. And they will be thrust into utter darkness. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation, increased with their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given." And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. And he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is God's word. There's uh, kind of several things that this does to recalibrate our hopes. Uh, this passage, uh, it begins uh, with darkness. Uh, you're like, I know, you're like, That's, that can't possibly be right. Like, what is this talking about? Spirits and listening to all of these things. Isaiah is talking about, even in the context of a nation, of a people who were kind of consumed with trying to find something that would give them some sort of immediate relief to pain and struggle and famine and, you know, just the trials of life. I don't know if you are aware of that, but, like, you might have some trials in your life. And when that occurs, you try to find some way of, of dealing with that pain, and usually what you do to deal with that pain and that struggle is create more pain for many other people, including yourself. Uh, you might say, oh, well, now I'll, now I'll uh, do some sort of drugs or caffeine. We were just talking, Jeff and I are uh, dependent on narcotics of caffeine. But you might, like, you, you reach for these things. You know, I'm really down. I'm really sad. I'm going to drink coffee. I mean, that's a trivial thing but we might also look for distractions of entertainment. We might just sort of develop this sort of muttering rage. We might find ourselves just trying to go to sleep or do whatever we can to go to sleep very quickly. There's a myriad of options that you can do to look to, uh, people you can go to, places you can listen for some sort of Uh, feedback that's positive that you might want. And Isaiah is saying here, like, if you do all that, here's the warning. Like, you should actually only listen to the words of God, but they don't. And that's just the context of the entire book of Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah is one of the longest books in the Bible. It's one of the most beautiful, poetic. It's the highest level of Hebrew you can read. If you want to read ancient Hebrew, I know you all do. Uh, So you should spend four years learning it and then read Isaiah. It's It's fantastic. Uh, But all along, what Isaiah is doing is kind of talking about this nation that's consumed with looking elsewhere. The very beginning of Isaiah, uh, when he kind of sees the glory of God, Isaiah chapter 6, he says, woe is me, because I'm a man of unclean lips and a nation of unclean lips. Basically, what he's saying is like, he sees God for who he is. He says, I'm a liar, Like, who I am is a liar to my core, to my bone. I don't do what's true. I don't live what's true. I am a liar, and I'm surrounded by a liar. Everybody I know is a liar. Everybody I know is saying cheap thrills, cheap things to make us well, and none of it compares to the glory of God. So Isaiah writes, look to the Lord, but nobody does. And he's kind of describing the the context of where those people were at. What does it lead to? It leads to these impactful words, distressed, wondering, famished, uh, looking upward and cursing their king and their God. They will look to the earth, this is in verse 22, and see only distress and only darkness. I don't really need to spend that much time this morning talking about darkness and anguish and gloom. You know, the, the news blares it out for you. Constantly, right? Like uh, senseless murders, senseless violence, injustice all over the globe. Um, It's just evident. It's obvious. It's not just out there, though. It's not just death and decay and destruction somewhere over there beyond the, the hill where we can't see. We know it's darkness and distress within us, too. We are people that long to see life. We're filled with rage. We long to taste peace in our relationships, but really only find distress. We long for satisfaction, but we continually, year over year, feel famished. It's darkness. It feels like no one is ever going to come and help us. That's why people look to the heavens and enrage with their God. Whatever your God is, whatever your king is. Uh, the, the rest of the scriptures basically describe this, especially in the language of King David, the wilderness of soul, which is what he's talking about here. T.S. Eliot uh, in a poem describes it uh, as the cactus land, the land of the dead. And we're just all wandering there and it feels like there is no help. Uh, just for the sake of, you know, I, know I knew that today would be the you know, the Thanksgiving homers, you know, the people who stayed around and didn't go away. So I thought I'd give you guys a little bit of extra dose of some stuff, uh, just so I could prove that Hebrew and Isaiah is really good. He talks about this curse and this death, and then in verse 22, he puts three words right up against each other to make us feel uh, how it feels. Uh, You know, consonants kind of help us, you know, express our rage. That's why the most popular curse words have some of those harsh sounds, right? Because there's something within it that gets us in touch with the anger inside. Now, I'm not, you know, don't say four-letter words or whatever. But there's a reason for it. And and, uh, Isaiah uses some words right here to describe this darkness and this gloom. He uses these three words. It's musak, suka, muap. That sounds intense, right? Musak, suka, muap. Especially when the rest of the language is like a flowing of Y and J sounds, and then suddenly it's musak, suka, muap. Musak distress, suka fear, muap gloom. Friends, family, right? We are living in the wilderness of a land of distress, fear, and gloom. And it is dark and tainted. This is how uh, all you Tolkien fans, the reason all of the bad guys have names that sound like this is because he knew this language, this language of darkness, of pain, of anguish, right? But then perhaps the greatest Hebrew word you can find appears In chapter 9, verse 1, barim, after, you know, harsh nouns, then barim, nevertheless. In Portuguese, that word is todavia, which is just a powerful word for me, not for you. Nevertheless. It's a word that's, that's put there to let you know that uh, when the things seem the most dark, the most painful, the most agonizing, nevertheless, not, no less amount, no, no feebleness from God, he's going to do something new. Uh, Joseph, after years of slavery, imprisonment, abandonment, betrayal, uh, constantly being falsely accused, and separation from his family, like, what a tormented soul and life, you know? I think Luke Skywalker had it bad, like, Joseph in the Bible, like, what a tormented life. But at the end of it all, he sees his family there, and he says, you know, you meant it for evil, Barim, nevertheless... That's the word. Nevertheless, God meant it for good. And so this word nine one, it is the word of power and of hope. You are in the wilderness of soul, a world of gloom and distress. Nevertheless, nevertheless, you're weak and you're frail against sin and destruction and all the things battling against you. Nevertheless, nevertheless. Maybe you got yourself here, like in these verses in chapter 8. They were looking to all of these other things, and now they're in a place of pain and struggle and hardship. God says, nevertheless. It says then, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. The confidence of this hope, it goes on to describe a light dawning. The whole language of this is written uh, with complete confidence. It's written with so much confidence, it's in past tense. I know, you're like the Thanksgiving chosen. Now you're not going to come. Next year, you'll go to Bermuda or something. No, no, it's all written in the past tense with this future orientation. I mean, it's a remarkable language. And what this means is, is that the hope of the future, the thing that we're looking to in the future in these verses of nevertheless, gloom will be no more. It is so certain that you can talk about it, write about it, describe it with past tense verbs like it already happened. It's that sure of a thing. The people walking in darkness, it says, have seen a great light, like it's happened for you. A light has dawned. You can count on this happening, that gloom will be no more. What a profound, beautiful words that are true for any one of us. There will be no more mourning for those who are grieving. There will be no more gloom for those who are depressed. There'll be no more gloom for those who are anxious. There'll be no more fearful, distress. For those who are draped in anger, nevertheless, chapter 9, verse 2 says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light, and those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. really makes me think of the imagery of Victor Hugo and then the musical that was made, I think, by Rogers and Hammerstein, right? Two guys. I don't know. Maybe it's one guy. Anyway. The very end of the musical of Les Mis, uh, there's this epilogue where all the people, I mean, they had terrible lives, right? Like uh, sold into prostitution, their teeth ripped out of them, like borne down, like terrible, awful things, living in poverty, trying to build, get their freedom, it all being destroyed. But at the end of it all, most all the cast, all the characters come back to the stage and then they sing this song as the lights from the stage really go up. This is probably easier instead of learning Hebrew. Go to London, watch Les Mis. The lights all come, or you can watch it on Netflix, I'm pretty sure. And this is what they sing all in unison. It says, do you hear the people sing, lost in the valley of the night? It is the music of a people who are climbing to the light. For the wretched of the earth, there is a flame that never dies. Even in the darkest night will end and the sun will rise. They will live again in freedom, in the garden of the Lord. They will walk behind the plowshares. They will put away the sword. The chain will be broken, and all men will have their reward. Do you hear the people sing? Say, do you hear the distant drums? It is the future that they bring when tomorrow comes. the first profound element and rearranging that must happen around our hopes is that one day, one day, gloom will end. That's the the first hope that must alter within your soul has to go from despair that we all sense and feel that nothing will change and I'm all alone. The big change first must be from despair to one day gloom will be over with forever. The sun will rise, the light will shine, and we will see a great light. And there will be no gloom and there will be no more darkness. That is the first recalibration of your soul. And then in verse two, uh, uh, or three through five, it says this, it says, you've enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when the dividing of the plunder. As for the days of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors. Then it says, every warrior's boot used in battle, every garment rolled in blood, will be destined for burning and will be fuel for the fire. This is all amazing language and poetry to say that the war that's been raging will end, will end. The war, it's all in past tense as if it's already happened again, but it's talking about future reality that you can bank on, you can be completely confident in. One day, the war will be over once and for all. So celebrate, it says. Throw a party. Throw confetti in the air. Decorate your homes. Invite people over. Eat food. Rejoice, it says, Feel the amount of joy within you grow. That's what it says. He will increase their joy. Feel your joy grow knowing the war will be over and it will be won. And then the, the images of all of these things used to burden them, being transformed into something else entirely, a thing of life. The war is over. The first hope shift is that darkness will end. But what ends this war and this darkness? What breaks the curse of, your, of sin in your life? What stops the cycle that you can trace back generation to generation? What ends the season of distress and anguish? Is it some kind of new technology? You know, like these new Elon Musk spaceships. Is it some new idea like, that they're coming up with in academia, over. Is it, is it that is gonna end the war? Is it some new program that could get instituted? Some new mayor, some new president, some new CEO, some new job? Could it be some new insight that you gained from taking a $30 personality test? Is that what will break and end the war? No, the Bible says it is a child. Verse 6 says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And then it says this, and he will be called, this baby born, this son given, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Hope arrives in a son given, a present offered. You know, let earth receive their king. Hope arrives in the form of a wonderful counselor. And and not like a therapist. Like think of the the royal court where people are, uh, where kings and rulers need to hear good advice From other people, people who can come to them and say, hey, this is the history of all the things that have gone before, and here's wisdom on how to live in the present and where to go and how to operate, and this is what the future might hold for you, an advisor, a person who walks with you and says, this is the way to go. How does the war get defeated? A child is born, a son is given, and he is a wonderful counselor. For those of you who feel completely alone and you don't know what to do, you don't know where to go, where to turn, how to live, how to put your life in order, how to move forward at all, to you a son was given and he is a wonderful counselor and you are not alone. He also says that his name, he will be called also Mighty God. Angel, armies, warrior in battle. A person strong to defeat all darkness, all evil, to run into the battles, to run into the fire, the flame, the darkness, the the treachery within your soul, someone who can come and defeat it to the end. For those of you who feel completely beat down, oppressed this language about a bar being across your shoulder or rod of an oppressor of a deep yoke a son was given and he is a mighty god you are not defeated hope arrives in the form of an everlasting father someone to know you someone who cares who is with you, and not a here today, gone tomorrow, not a a weekend father or an evening father or a father during the holidays. He's talking about an ever-present, always with you, intimate, knowing father, everlasting father. For those of you who feel abandoned in your pain, a son was given, a child born, and he is everlasting father to you. Then he says, Hope arrives in a prince of peace, shalom, which means a resting, thriving. Resting, thriving. We kind of think about uh, the opposite of if for you to live your best life and to maximize your life, you should hustle and work harder. You know, like the patron saint of Los Angeles, Kobe Bean Bryant, right? Work harder and harder and harder till your knees fall off, and then work harder some more. The Bible talks about this word shalom, a resting thriving, to thrive while being at rest, a complete peace. For those of you who are exhausted and weary and bereft of war, both internally and externally, a child was born to you, prince of peace. And so the second thing to recalibrate our hopes or to rearrange our souls is to go not just from, oh, despair to hope that gloom will end. But to this other part that hope has arrived and it's not a thing, it's not an object, it's not an idea or a concept, it's a person, it's a child, it's a gift offered already to you. Hope has already arrived. Then the next recalibration of hope is that it's a holistic rule and reign of God. Not just for you. I mean, all of this is wonderful for you, right? It's not just for you. It's not a cul-de-sac of like, oh, God's just trying to be your best friend or just to have a special thing, just me and God, right? Like slow dancing in a burning room kind of thing. No, what God is doing and what God has always wanted to do is to bring a holistic reign and rule of peace for the world. Not just for four years, though, or not just for a 100 years, but forever. This is verse 7. It says this. Of the greatness of his government, or just rule and peace, there will be no end. What he's talking about there is that, that the kingdoms, you know, they have walls and borders and boundaries where the king can't cross that and still be in charge. Somebody else is in charge. He's saying that this child, this prince of peace, Mighty God, everlasting father, wonderful counselor, there is nowhere that he will roam where he is not God and the ground itself does not adore him as the king and the ruler of everything. There is no end. He doesn't run into border patrol. He doesn't run into a wall or a military brigade or, you know, a shutting down of anything. He is free to roam and this kingdom knows no end. And then it goes on to say, and he will reign on David's throne over his kingdom, and he will be establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on and forevermore. It's sort of this double thing. From that time on, once and for all, it will start and it'll just continue. How far is it going to continue? It's going to continue all the way to forevermore. It's like a great, like, double Oh, it's gonna be forever and always, right? I love you to the moon and back and then to infinity and beyond, right? It will never end. Nothing will stop it. There's not an expiration date. It is forever through the end of time and then again forever. And so we have to recalibrate that hope. We might be stuck in this moment throughout this year thinking, only despair and only an idea or a new thing that I might purchase or new outcome or new job. But then it's not that, it's a person and it's not despair, it's the end of darkness. And it's not just for me, it's for the world. And so the people heard this, went into exile, they longed for it, they came back from exile, they got invaded multiple times If you want to know of any notable ancient hero, you know, all of the people whose names start with great, you know, like, or end with the great. Sorry, I just switched it. But, uh, you know, Anthony the Great, right? All of the greats, they all conquered them. That's who the people of Israel are. They were conquered by everyone. The Sacramento kings of the ancient world. And they waited Nothing could happen. Nothing seemed to be happening. There were plenty of people born, uh, political underlings were born, people who claimed to be king, but they knew wasn't, because he was nothing like an everlasting father or ever-present prince of peace. But then a child was born. And Luke, he says, and while they were there in Bethlehem, time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son, and she wrapped him up. Matthew says, she gave birth to a son, and he, Joseph, the, the next one, gave him the name Jesus, the Lord will save John 1, 1 through 14 is this long elaborate thing about the word was with God and the, and, and the word was God and the, by everything, the, the word made the world and all of this stuff and that there's someone who's going to come and tell us about the word and then like a, like a bomb being dropped on this nice gentle flower bed pillow says, and then the word became flesh and dwelt among us. I say all of that to let you know that a child has been born. Like the confidence of that prophecy to talk about past tense, for us, it truly is. The hope that we have, a child has been born, and he was the Prince of Peace. He, he was thriving in rest, and everyone who got to be around him got to thrive as well. He was an everlasting Father, knowing things and caring for people in ways they didn't even know they needed to be cared for. He was a mighty God, controlling the seas and the winds, pushing back against all darkness that all cowered at Him, all the way point to cowering at Him in the grave. He has come. And so for us, Advent... uh, You know, is a season where we remember that God has come, the child has been born, and we look to the future of when all the rest of this stuff will take place once and for all, but we know it has happened. We're like people who are hoping for a sunrise, and we already see the sun coming up. We know that it's coming up. We can see it. It's there on the horizon, breaking above. Or we're also like people who, like I ask my mom for gifts, and then she buys that gift, like whatever it is, it's pretty great. As long as the list isn't too long, you know, you ask for it, it gets put under the tree, right? And then me as a child, it only took a few years to know that this is how it worked. You ask for it, you get it. I don't know, it's probably a good spiritual gift that my parents were giving me, also probably like not anyway. Anyway. But it's like, we are people that know that the gift has already been purchased and it's been put under the tree, and all we have to do is wait for that to be completely unwrapped and experience the grace and the beauty of the kingdom and the rule that will know no end and will be forever and ever. Our hopes must be altered in this way too, that we've already received the son, the child born. The sunrise has already come. We've seen the great light. And so you get to ask yourself how will I prepare room? How must I rearrange my hopes? How must I now move out all of these false things that I've hoped in? How will I receive the sun? Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for the the light that has come. I thank you for the beauty of your birth into this world, that you humbled yourself, you emptied yourself, and you came in a great light and stars that people followed, uh, glittering, brilliant light. God, I pray for us to receive that hope that you would work within our souls, reshape our hope around you and you alone. I thank you for this time. I thank you for this season of reflection and remembering and of expectation. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.